You are listening Ukraine 242. We bring you interview subjects from all walks of life in wartime in Ukraine. Thanks to all our listeners around the world. Here is our collaborator and your host and Livin. Welcome to Ukraine 242, a weekly show featuring interviews with experts and key people on the ground in Ukraine. I am your host, Anne Levine, reporting from WOMR for the Pacifica Radio Network. Our guest is United States Marine William McNulty, the head of mission for White Stork, an evacuation and medical supply operation founded in Ukraine following the 2022 Russian invasion. William McNulty, welcome to Ukraine 242. Thanks for having us on. President Zelensky went to the recently liberated Kherson. It would seem like an incredibly dangerous thing for him to do. What would you say is the size of a security operation like that? Well, of course, it's a dangerous trip for President Zelensky to take to, to go visit Kherson City, but also the leader of a country very important symbolically for the men and women who served in the armed forces and the people that he leads. We saw President Bush go visit the site of the World Trade Center attack, and that's a message. It's a message to not only his own people about, hey, I'm, I'm right here with you, but also to Russia that, hey, I'm here and we aren't going to just stop here. Crimea is next. Uh, the size of his security apparatus is probably in the in the hundreds. You have, of course, the military and it's stationed in, in the area, the regional military administration, but it's, it's an important symbolic gesture for him to be there, to be part of the celebration of retaking a city that Russia... Vladimir Putin had annexed, what, not just a month ago. First, could you describe Operation White Stork for our listeners? Operation White Stork is a humanitarian aid organization where uh, a U.S. 501c3 charity as well as a Polish charity. And we started by conducting uh, evacuations. Um, so we've evacuated over 37,000 primarily women and children, of course. Uh, but today, what we're primarily doing is medical and other types of non-lethal aid directly to either the Ukrainian military or other civilian-type organizations like Ukrzelostitia, the state emergency service, like Ukrainian post office. Um, and let's talk about those civilian organizations first. Whenever a new city is liberated, Ukraine has done a fantastic job of reestablishing services and that requires repair to infrastructure. So, for instance, the railway. I was on the first train into Kupiansk a couple weeks ago um, after services were established there. And in order to establish those services, you have teams that go out and walk the railway line and inspect it for unexploded ordnance. And when I was on the train into Kupiansk, we could see grad rockets sticking out of sections of the railway. Could you tell us what grad rockets are? Yeah, sure. Grad rockets is a type of rocket that Russia uses. It's a self-propelled multiple rocket launcher. It's Russian-made. It sits on the back. 
of, of, of like a flatbed truck and you literally point it and you shoot it towards a particular area. The Russians really aren't really good at targeting and it's kind of a crude device, but nonetheless, it's effective if you are in that area that's kind of hammered by grab rockets. So, someone in the U.S. military and artillery shared with me a, a, a kind of a crude way of how the Russian strategy works. You know, we, the Americans, have the ability to put an artillery shell in that building, in that particular floor of that building. The Russians have the ability to destroy the entire square city block, but they don't have the ability to be so pinpoint perfect and targeted as we do. And so that's a crude way of explaining but keep in mind, Russia does have more artillery in the world than any other military. It's really their center of gravity. It's what they've built their whole military around is their artillery. That's why when they focus their artillery on an area, they decimate it. And that's what we've seen in some of these cities, including some of these cities that I traveled to on this last trip. Well, that's a helpful explanation about Russia's sort of brute strength as opposed to precision we're providing Ukraine with NATO weaponry versus old Warsaw Pact Russian weaponry. And our systems, including the howitzer systems that we've provided, require training. It requires Ukrainians to really learn and understand that it's more of an art than the Russian system. So that's why we've seen some pushback about, oh, well, are the Ukrainians prepared? Absolutely, the Ukrainians are prepared to learn these systems. They're actually building some of these systems themselves. You mentioned when I asked you to explain the grad rockets that these were on train tracks and other yes. ordinances. Yes. So as we were on the train to Kupiansk, we were riding the train down the track. We could see that there were unexploded rockets, some of them sticking out of the railroad track. Um, of course, not on the track that we were on. But my point is, is there's a lot of unexploded ordnance, and this requires teams to go out and locate and diffuse and remove that unexploded ordnance. In the military, we call them EOD teams, explosive ordnance disposal. And so Ukrzelosnitsia has those teams. I'd like and- to I'd like to just stop here and point out that Ukrzelosnitsia is the rail company of Ukraine. Yeah, it's the, the Ukrainian railway company that operates across Ukraine. By the way, it's the largest employer in Ukraine. And so as soon as these cities open up, what we're seeing is bridges that have been filleted open. Iron beams that have been peeled back like you would a banana. If you can imagine the amount of force that it takes to do that. And then you have these teams of Ukrainians from Ukrzelosnitsia who are out there with their torches and, you know, the goggles on so that it doesn't blind them, cutting off sections of these bridges so that they can install a new section to repair the railway line. They're doing this while missiles, hundreds of missiles are flying overhead. Civilians work for Ukrzelosnitsia and go out and clear the railway of these munitions or booby traps because Russia has done that as well, right? I'm talking about unexploded ordnance and also Russia intentionally setting booby traps, you know, whether it's for the railways or farmers or soldiers or anyone. 
really, right? They, they're just trying to kill any Ukrainian they possibly can. So that requires first aid kit necessary to stop traumatic bleeding if they set off that munition by accident. And so we supply Ukrizelosnitia with all the first aid kits um, required to do that job. William, when you're traveling by train through Ukraine, how do you feel about that? Do you feel secure? I feel very secure when I'm traveling by train throughout Ukraine because the alternative is traveling by car. And God, I love the Ukrainians, but there are some crazy Ukrainian drivers up there. <laughs> and uh, if you've ever been driving on a road in Ukraine that's, you know, single lane each way, increasingly in disrepair because of the war, and you have a tractor trailer trying to pass you at 80 miles an hour, <laughs> and there's oncoming traffic, you understand exactly what I mean. So a train feels a lot safer, I guess. A train feels a lot safer than driving Ukrainian roads. I mean, just a couple of weeks ago, trains were 94% on time for the day. And they define on time as that train is leaving or arriving within five minutes of schedule. 94% of the trains across Ukraine were on time for the entire 24-hour period. That's incredible That's during wartime. Extraordinary. For Amtrak isn't doing this. It right? sure is. And so the leadership, the CEO, his name is Alexander Kamishin. What's the last name? Kamishin. And the head of passenger operations, his name is Alexander Perstovsky. These two men and their team, and I've become very close with them and their team, have set very ambitious goals that there are no excuses because we are in a war. There are no excuses that missiles are flying overhead. There are no excuses that our rails might be booby-trapped. We are going to continue to operate we're not going to use any of these excuses to slow down. We're going to continue to operate at our expectations of delivering for our customers. And, you know, they have their motto of keep running. And it's just very impressive. They just opened up a new route in the Carpathians that has been closed for over a decade. Keep in mind, they're doing this while Russia is conducting the largest attacks of the war. That's extraordinary. Yeah. The reason I mentioned Ukrizelsnitsia is when we talk about these liberated cities, Ukraine has to reestablish services. And there's a number of services that have to reestablish, but one of the first two are the railways so that people can move in and out and the post office, which pays out government pension as well. So we supply the railways and the post office with first aid kits because they are going into these areas having to clear munitions, sometimes walking into places of, that have intentionally booby-trapped by the Russians. But Ukraine isn't, you know, they're not, they're not just allowing Russia to destroy their infrastructure. Ukraine is actually building during the war. That's incredible. You travel throughout Ukraine right now, and you see construction happening. They're not sitting idly by and, and saying, woe is me. They're opening up new rail lines that have been closed for over a decade. That, to me, is incredible. What's happening as far as rebuilding in the parts of Ukraine that are virtually scorched earth at this point? Well, I can tell you from what I've personally seen, 
Um, to go into Kupiansk, for instance, there is a bridge that had been blown. So we couldn't go the full route in. So we rode the train up to the bridge, stopped, disembarked, walked out, and we traveled across a pontoon bridge to get to the other side. And I saw the quote-unquote iron people of Ukrzelsnitsia repairing these bridges. So again, they're not stopping for the war. They're, they're not creating some excuse that, oh, the war is here. And that's the power that a leader has to set an example. When we started this conversation today, you asked about Zelensky and him going to Kherson City. Well, he's sending a signal to his entire country that we aren't going to stop, that we are going to rebuild. And that's exactly what Alexander Kemyshin does and Alexander Prasovsky when they go visit and open up a new railway head, when they go open up a new train station, when they go and inspect a bridge. They're setting an example, sending a message to their own teams about their expectations that we are going to fix this as fast as we possibly can. We're going to open up service to this new city as fast as we possibly can so that Ukrainians who live there or Ukrainians who are there and would like to move about the country on the train have that option. They are going to make life as normal as possible. But that's the really special thing about Ukraine. I see this across industry. Ukrainians are an inspired people. They are trying to learn, improve themselves. Very tech savvy. I knew nothing about Ukraine prior to driving into Ukraine on February 28th. I had never met a Ukrainian. But what I have found is the people that I have fallen in love with and, and now call great friends. You are listening to Ukraine 242, an exploration of the events, circumstances, and context of the ongoing Russian invasion of Ukraine. I am Anne Levine from WOMR in Provincetown, Massachusetts, reporting for the Pacifica Network. Our guest is U.S. Marine William McNulty of Operation White Stork. Thank you for joining us. William McNulty, winter is here, pretty much. Has Operation White Stork been helping out getting prepared for winter with Ukrainian military and civilians. So White Stork has been helping out with cold weather gear. We've shifted our focus from solely first aid kits to include other things to help Ukraine get through what we've been advised just going to be a very brutal winter compared to last winter, which was warmer to the benefit of of Ukraine because it forced Russia to have to move its tanks through the mud. But yes, we have now started to supply cold weather gear. We've done that to a number of Ukrainian units. We support about a half dozen brigades. Um, We've chosen those brigades because they are on the front line fighting to retake territory, and we continue to supply those brigades over and over and over again. We're preparing to send in generators right now. You know, at the end of the day, we are a small charity, and so in order for us to make an impact, we need to focus our impact, and so we have decided to focus on a half dozen brigades. 
You know, we also supply civilian organizations, the state emergency service, but we are increasingly now supplying the types of aid that you would need to stay warm, to help provide electricity, sleeping bags, thermals, snowsuits to help Ukraine weather this winter. The Russians have these same problems as the Ukrainians with winter, wouldn't you say? <laughs> Russia is having to do this, right? Supply, equip their military for winter in a foreign land, which is difficult, especially for the very poor Russian supply line. So I, I don't think it's very fun to be a Russian soldier right now in Ukraine. Not long ago, you were in the now-liberated city of Kherson, in the Kherson Oblast, or county. Would you describe what you saw there? I was in the Kherson Oblast along what is the second line of defense, providing body armor and other types of non-lethal aid. What was it like? It was a lot of outgoing Ukrainian artillery fire. And where we were, there wasn't a lot of incoming counter-battery fire from the Russians. But what there was a lot of, drone attacks, Shahid drones, and S-300 missile attacks. Could you explain what those are? Yeah. Shahid drones are a type of Iranian drone, and it kind of looks like a flying V, and it has a warhead at front. And when it's flying overhead, it sounds like a lawnmower. Russia had been supplied hundreds of these, and most of them are being shot down. However, there are just so many that they are flying into Ukraine at any given time that undoubtedly some are getting through the air defenses. They fly kind of similar to a, a cruise missile, low and parallel to the earth until they, they reach their intended target. Hundreds of these drones had been fired into Ukraine while we were there. And then we also saw many F-300 missiles. These are Russian-made missiles, long-range surface-to-air missiles, and those are more damaging than the drones. What Russia now continues to throw at Ukraine is everything in its arsenal or everything that it can buy from Iran. What we had heard, but we had not been targeted by them yet, subsequently they have started to land, were Iranian ballistic missiles. And I think those are more dangerous because they're not flying like cruise missiles, which are easier for Ukraine's air defense to shoot out of the sky. Ballistic missiles are flying at a higher altitude and then coming straight down. And they didn't have the system to interdict those things at the time. And that's going to take things like Patriot missile batteries and other things that I don't think Ukraine has yet. There are Patriot missile batteries literally right next door in Poland all along the border. Um, I mean, this isn't a secret. They're right there in plain sight. So that's a political discussion about whether or not this can be provided. And the Iron Dome system is another air defense system developed by Israel that's used to intercept and, and destroy short-range rockets, artillery shells. That would be very useful for Ukraine. But so far, Ukraine is not receiving the support it would like to see from, from Israel. So Ukraine either has to develop a system on its own, and I'm sure they're they're working on that. Ukraine is very tech-savvy. So they're also developing these systems on their own right now. You can put your money on it. Getting back to Poland for a minute, some missiles landed in Poland. 
killing two people. Who fired those missiles? What do you think happened? I think what happened is probably what the U.S. administration right now in, in, in Poland is saying. I trust their investigators to do an open, transparent report about what took place. It appears that these uh, may have been Ukrainian missiles that was part of the Ukrainian air defense that was you know, being used to shoot Russian missiles out of the sky that accidentally landed in Poland. But make no mistake, this whole thing is still caused by Russia. And the day that happened, we had a team that had just come across the country and was approaching the Polish border when those two missiles landed in Poland. It shut down the entire border to vehicles. And so my team was sitting there, fourth in line on the Ukraine side, trying to process into Poland and instead had to wait. Initially, we were told they, they wouldn't be able to get through until the morning. After about uh, four or five hours, they opened up the border again and let them through. But we didn't know at the time. And so it, it was well within the, the realm of imagination that Russian missiles could have overflown Lviv and landed in Poland. I could certainly see Russian targeting systems were absolutely terrible. In fact, I'm, I'm surprised that something like this hasn't happened already in Moldova or, or Romania. I don't want to, you know, I don't think they would have intentionally sent these missiles into Poland at the time because that would be such a catastrophic mistake for Russia to do. It would trigger Article 5, an attack on one NATO country, an attack on all. But that day, there were over 100 missiles that were launched. And so it's just the amount of Russian missiles in the air that we don't see this happening, just the sheer magnitude of missiles. Are there any checks and balances in place for an accident? In other words, if those missiles that landed in Poland were Russian, but it was not an attack on Poland, Mm -hmm. is there a way to prevent triggering Article 5? A lot of it depends on the NATO country where that event happened. So we were all kind of waiting to see how Poland would react. And Poland, by the way, is what an unsung hero of this war. Not only did Poland, you know, let in 65% of the refugees from Ukraine, they've just been providing them services, treating the Ukrainians, I think, so much better than any other neighboring country. And just the Polish people having taken in so many Ukrainian families, the Polish citizens have responded just like the Polish government. They are taking Ukrainians into their homes. They, you know, they're, they're a true unsung hero. And so that's why when, when Poland comes out and says, hey, we've conducted our investigation, our analysis, this is what we think it is, I take them at their word. People have said that the liberation of Kherson was possibly the beginning of the end of this war. Of course, the response to it was a terrible barrage of missiles landing in Lviv, more in Kiev. What do you think about that? Maybe we're starting to see this coming to a close. Well, we don't know. My feeling is, you know, this ends in Russia. We're approaching 100,000 dead Russians in Ukraine. That's an incredible amount of people. And so, It's just my personal feeling that Ukraine will continue to win strategically, operationally, tactically on the battlefield. Ukraine will continue to push back Russian positions, but that is going to come at extreme cost to Ukraine as well. But Ukraine has no choice but to continue and fight. 
if they were to accept some sort of ill-advised land for peace deal by giving up land in return for peace, Russia would just use that time to rearm and re-equip and do this all over again. It's a true genocide, which is why the world needs to do more to stop Russia and Ukraine. So Ukraine has to fight for every square inch that Russia has taken, and that includes Crimea and the Donbass, because to accept anything else would be accepting your own fate, and that's not going to happen. And I do wonder, how many babushkas need to bury their sons in Russia? You know, is it 100,000 dead Russians? Is it 125, is it 150,000 dead Russians? But it's just my personal feeling that the war ends with a shift in the political dynamic in the Kremlin. Is there anything else you would like to say about White Stork, about the work you're doing? You can find us at operationwhitestork.org. We continue to supply our Ukrainian partners and are shifting the type of support with how the needs are shifting on the ground. And we are going to continue to do this until the wars end or we run out of our own resources. We just believe that the world needs to come together to stop Russia in Ukraine. And how can you not do that when you watch the Ukrainian military liberate their own land and, and those Ukrainians who were there during the occupation and see how they react? It's inspiring. William McNulty, thank you very much for this conversation and we wish you success and safety. Thank you, Anne. Thanks for having us on. My pleasure. Так буває, не світає темна й холодна путь. Та в мої край білі зграї мири тепло Leleko, White Stork, was written after the Russian invasion of Ukraine on February 24, 2022, and was recorded with smartphones from bomb shelters during air raids. Vocals, Zlata Ognevich and Alex Lozovsky. Music and lyrics by Alex Lozovsky.
Our thanks to U.S. Marine William McNulty of the White Stork Foundation. Prior to White Stork, William co-founded Team Rubicon and then founded Team Rubicon Global, the internationally acclaimed veteran-led disaster response organization. He is a U.S. Marine who served in both the infantry and intelligence. He holds a BA in economics and communication studies and an MA in government. To learn more, go to whitestorkfoundation.org. Editing by Ursula Rudenberg. Recording by Michael Levine. To see pictures of our guests and for more information, go to ukraine242.com. This is Anne Levine. Until next week on Ukraine 242.